We seem to love the story of the wars between the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings, right? I mean, we read books about this and make them bestsellers. We watch TV shows on various networks. Heck, there's even a best-selling Japanese manga about this era that has become a top anime. It is an awesome period of time. But we get it into our heads that from 886 until 1066, the narrative we have is one of 200 years or so of gradual domination of England by the Anglo-Saxons fighting the Vikings until the arrival of William the Conqueror in 1066 brought this whole age to a close. Nothing could be further from the truth, however. From the point of view of London, these next couple of centuries were actually a very differing tale. It was an age where nothing was certain. Britain, the entire island, was literally physically surrounded on all sides by a people who had no nation, no single core identity, a heady carnival of those who came from nothing and were trying to amount to something. It was an era of forming identities, where there were no powers that lasted for very long. Britain could have become something utterly unrecognisable to us today. The purpose of the Story of London podcast is to tell the story of the city. But before we can get into that, we need to understand the context of the world around it. The current part of the story is set in the 10th century, and in every way possible, we need to understand just how massive the stakes were in Britain during the 10th century. If the last chapter was a summary of the past, all condensed into a nice single episode, then this chapter goes the other way. It will look ahead to the events of the next few decades and try to place them into context, so you can place the events in London into that context. We need to have an overview of the next few decades, because make no mistake, during the upcoming years, London was to have a front row seat in a massive geopolitical series of events that were to irrevocably change the land around it forever. This second season, or second book in the story of London, is called The Kingdom of London. And we begin with a crash guide to the wars of the 10th century. Welcome to the Great Game. So we ground the start of our tale with London, or as it was known at the time, the London Fort, or Lundenburg. It's an important border town in the state of Wessex, with the neighbouring country of East Anglia, run by the Vikings for at least a generation, just upriver from it in Essex. Centuries of London being part of Mercia had now passed, and the city-to-be had relocated from its old location on the bend on the River Thames to its new location, one mile east behind the newly restored Roman walls. These walls served a purpose and made it too formidable for anybody to seek to mount an attack upon it in the 10th century. We can say that the Fort of London was strong. And because it was strong, it was safe. And because it was safe, it was becoming more profitable. Slowly. 
Elsewhere in Britain, the fate of the nation was being decided in an epic clash. A great game of sorts, played out in intrigue, politics and battle. The game would see titanic invasions from east and west, terrible surges southwards from the north and fierce counterattacks into the north from the south, which took place every few years, it seemed. London remained mostly out of the game until it was strong enough to not only play a role in what was to come, not only be part of the fight to dictate who would run this nation, it would become a core player, a factor all sides could not afford to overlook. But to get to that moment, we need to understand what was going on around it. As such, I'm just going to describe what happened in the wars of the opening part of the 10th century, as bare bones as possible. And while there is way more detail to these wars, it helps to imagine that we've only two sides in this game. On the one side, the forces of the Angleson, the, the English kind, the Anglo-Saxons, nominally under the control of the kings of Wessex. And on the other, the, the Vikings, the heathens, the Danes, the Danelaw, the equal and opposite forces to those in the south. There is much, much more to the actual descriptions of who was actually fighting who, and I will get into that later, but for now, we just need to go over the wars of that mad 10th century. After Alfred the Great dies, his son, Edward, later known as Edward the Elder, takes the throne of Wessex and he begins expanding his holdings. From 912 to 920 or so, Wessex manages to nominally conquer all of England south of the Humber River. It's an epic series of events which we could spend days explaining, but since it doesn't involve London much, I'm not gonna. Basically, the armies of Wessex under Edward and his sister, Aethelfleda of Mercia, systematically take out the Viking-dominated Five Boroughs, which is a name given to the parts of Mercia which were under Viking control, and also takes out the Kingdom of East Anglia. So the entire south and central region of Britain was now under English control. Wessex seems to be winning. At the same time, however, the wars against the Vikings took a profound shift. As I said in previous episodes, the story of the Vikings cannot be divided up by national boundaries. Remember, we, here and now in the 21st century, when we look at the past, we place borders on areas. These borders apply to the world as we see it today. So we talk of France and of Spain, of Ireland and of England, and we tell the history of those nations. But to the people back in the 10th century, none of these nations actually existed back then. I'm sure they were soon to be born, but the Frankish kingdoms, for example, were not France. El Andalus was not Spain. The many separate tribal regions and polities in Ireland did not make up an Irish nation, and Wessex was not England. And as such... The Vikings never divided the world previous to this period by geographic borders dictated to by land. They would attack whomever they could attack, regardless of who or what they were. The Vikings on the Irish Sea, for example, the oldest and most powerful of the Scandinavian Dysporan regions, never divided their territory up as Irish territory or Scottish territory. It was their territory. Their border was... Everything the sea touches. 
The only impact those differing nationalities had was it dictated who they would be attacking or who they would be sleeping with. And given the growing Hiberno-Norse population on the Irish Sea at the time, it showed they were sleeping with lots of folks. But anyway, by 920, Wessex was clearly holding the cards within Britain. But overall, while strong on the battlefield, the signs were becoming ominous for Wessex. And the reason for this was the consequence of the actions of the Dysporan Great Heathen Army. See, the Great Heathen Army had seen the Vikings go from smash-and-grab raiding into owning and possessing land. Maybe that land was small, fortified towns, like Dublin. Or maybe that land was huge swathes of territory, like East Anglia. Yet, regardless of the size of the land that was controlled, the results were the same. Within only a few decades, the Vikings had seen common-born men rise to become overlords of estates. Olaf the White had become the Lord of Dublin and then ruler of the Irish Sea. Rorik of Dorsted had become overlord of Frisia. Ivar the Boneless had taken East Anglia and then retired to take over Olaf the White's land. Halfdan Whiteshirt had carved out a massive region of northern Britain before consolidated control over the Vikings in Ireland to become king of Dublin and York. Guthrum had turned his utter defeat at the hands of Alfred the Great into becoming king of East Anglia. So it comes as no surprise that other Vikings sought to get in on this land-holding action. And also no surprise that the vast force that around the year 910 was busy rampaging over in the Frankish kingdom, something called the Great Army, who had originated in Fulham some years previously, now also began seeking to gain land. The key to all of this was a figure called Rollo. It was this Rollo who, after a battle against the Frankish king, Charles III, or Charles the Simple, had been offered and accepted the title of Count of the Northern Channel region of the Frankish Kingdom, a place that would in time become known as Normandy. Rollo and his people settled this region, and it is clear that this new territory wasn't Frankish lands under new administration. With Rollo in charge, it quickly became part of the Viking diaspora. And how do we know this? Well, the region was filmed with Viking peoples, but we can tell from the place names of the communities that settled in Normandy that the Viking followers of Rollo came not just from Scandinavia, but also from the diasporan communities in England, in Ireland, in Scotland, in Wales. This new territorial gain allowed the diaspora begin to claim more territory. So while the first generations of conquests that was done by the great heathen army up in Britain were being diminished by the growing power of Wessex, Elsewhere, the Vikings, like a pack of predatory wolves, were expanding and attacking new places and getting to own them. And soon after Normandy was theirs, they found somewhere else to attack. Brittany. Brittany was not part of the Frankish kingdoms back then. It was a semi-independent nation and had maintained its independence by becoming allies 
with the Vikings. That Viking leader we featured over a few chapters ago, a Haystan, he had been based in Brittany for years and had supplied men to fight alongside the forces of Brittany to repel the Franks on several occasions. But now Rollo had been given land by Charles the Simple. The relationship changed. Now the Vikings started to attack Brittany and the region was not ready for it. Monasteries began to be violated so often that the monks and nuns literally shuttled around the sacred relics of saints to avoid their destruction and desecration. In time, several of these relics ended up in Wessex because literally that was the only safe place left, it seemed. And where the church led, the nobility followed. See, the Vikings took Brittany and several nobles from the region also fled to Wessex as it became a Viking-controlled province for the next 35 years or so. And the reason I'm talking about this is, well, if you looked on the map, while Edward the Elder was consolidating his land and increasing control of Wessex over Britain, if you zoomed out, you could clearly see that with Frisia, then Normandy, and now Brittany, under Viking control, alongside Viking control of the Irish Sea and the Scottish Islands. Wessex was being surrounded. The balance of power was shifting away from Wessex, like it or not. The Vikings were inevitably going to counter-strike. And this explains why in 917, Two Norse adventurers, Rugvald and Sidic, arrived in Ireland and after a short struggle took over the Irish North Gale communities. These two were not focused on subjugating the Irish so much as focusing on Dublin's most important target, control of the city of Jorvik, or York, as by controlling that they could link the Irish Sea to the North Sea via the North's extensive river networks. Within a few months, Rugvald, leading an army of the now united Vikings of Ireland, the Scottish Islands, the Isle of Man and the Irish Sea, and had managed to defeat a joint Saxon-Scottish force opposing them. And a year later, Rugvald is King of York, so the Vikings are winning. He, however, dies in 920 and is succeeded by his companion Sidic. And soon after, Edward the Elder dies, and Aethelstan of Wessex takes the throne in 924. Still, Sidic's main threat doesn't come from Wessex, but actually comes from the lands under his control over the Irish Sea, and he has to sail back to put down a rebellion in 926, which sees him killed. This means his brother, Guthfrith, takes over in York, without, we assume, the physical support of the Norse of the Irish Sea, perhaps explaining away why Aethelstan of Wessex was able to take York back in 927. Wessex is now winning. By 934, a mere seven years later, a new Norse chief arrives in Dublin, Olaf Guthrithson, who galvanises the Vikings of the Irish Sea to launch another combined force to retake York. This, in turn, leads to Aethelstan's greatest moment, where he defeats the Vikings and their Scottish allies at the semi-mythic Battle of Branborough in 937. 
in the aftermath of which he becomes really the first undisputed king of the British Isles in many ways. Wessex is still winning and looks like they have properly won for all time. Time to celebrate, yes? No. Because you see, just two years later, Aethelstan was dead and Olaf Gofriston simply reinvaded and conquered York in 939. The Vikings are winning again. And within a year, Olaf Guthrithson had humiliated the new king of Wessex, Edmund Ironsides, by retaking all of England north of Watling Street from Wessex, before going on to carve a huge portion of Scotland for his new state, conquering everything south of Dunbar by 940. The Vikings are still winning, and now they look like they've properly won for all time. Time to go into mourning, yes? No, because no sooner had the momentum of victory swung so violently one way, then it swung back again as Guthrissum died, and a Viking called Olaf Curan took over briefly, and Edmund Ironsides was back in charge of York by 948. So Wessex is winning, and then, well, finally an actual Scandinavian from Scandinavia turns up. A former king of Norway called Erik Bloodaxe, 14 years after losing his throne over there, turns up and retakes York, and the Vikings are winning again. But then he briefly has a power struggle with the former ruler of York, Olaf Curon, and they decide that the northern Viking domains of York and Dublin should be divided between the two of them. Bloodaxe gets York, Curan takes Dublin. Both men begin expansionist policies, attacking outwards, but Bloodaxe was killed at the Battle of Stanmore in 954, and Curan died at the Battle of Tara in 980. Is it any wonder we find this era so confusing at times? To those alive in the 10th century, it must have felt like you were in a permanent state of geopolitical whiplash. This was the great game of the 10th century. And during all of this, London was still trading, still a border town, and while trouble did spill south, it was north of them, thankfully, where most of the action seemed to be taking place. Yet in looking at these events, we have to take on board a few factors that may upset how we see history, how we locate ourselves within the tales of our ancestors. Remember, as I keep stressing, the very identity of the English peoples, the Angleson, was an artificial construct. It was a political title created by Alfred the Great to signify why he and his descendants should be ruling over Wessex, but also over Mercia and also East Anglia and, and well, kind of everyone, really. The identity was not adopted by a single human being because of the power of Alfred's reasoned arguments or because anyone ever woke up one morning and said, yes, I am now an English person. This identity was born out of this war. From the lifetime of Alfred and during the 10th century we just described, the Anglesin state was permanently at war. This war defined how the state was organised. This war defined how the people lived. This war defined every aspect of life. Men would be born into a state where wherever you were born, you were supposedly never more than 25 miles from a burr, a fortified safe town, where you and your family could hide if the enemy ever attacked, and given that the enemy was based on the sea, they could attack 
anywhere, nowhere was safe. Everyone needed to live near a burr. Then, as you grew up, you'd become eligible to be part of the feud. You were obligated maybe to join an armed force of your neighbours and to march off to war. It wasn't so bad. You only served for a set period of time, and no matter who ordered you up, not even the kings could defy that set period. But as you served, maybe to garrison a nearby burr, or maybe to march out and join forces with the other fjords from across the entire nation to create massive armies. And when that happened, you began to meet people just like you. Maybe they came from Essex, or from Hampshire. Maybe they were Cornish, or maybe their ancestry was Mercian. But this changed your perception of these people. A sense of unity was created, born out of the adversity of events. A sense of identity was formed out of this unity, and a sense of nation was formed out of this identity. Which means we cannot say exactly at this exact day and date is when England was created, but during the events earlier, the idea of England was born, and with it, the idea of the English peoples. But this wasn't the only artificial identity being born because of the war at the time. To all things, there is an equal and opposite. And this is why we must examine the nature of their opposition, the Vikings of the Dane law. There is a process known as schismogenesis, wherein a tribe or group of humans would define themselves simply by comparing themselves to their neighbours and going, who are we? We are everything they are not. If our neighbours worship one god, we'll worship another. If our neighbours practice polygamy, we'll practice monogamy. If our neighbours like blue, we will like red. It's as reactionary and as childish as that. But schismogenesis is also a universal reaction of all humans, everywhere, through all cultures, times and periods. We even see it happening today. Schismogenesis was basically what was happening to the Angleson. Englishness was defined as not the Danes. They became a very good bogeyman for the rulers of Wessex to use to unite their people against. Yet this process was also working the other way. This when we talk about the people who lived outside of the areas ruled by the kings of Wessex, the Danes as the Anglo-Saxons called them. We have to take on board right now that who they were is a story that is much more complicated and complex than how the kings of Wessex told it. I could spend days trying to grasp the complexity of this issue, but the only thing we need to grasp is the Danes were not Danish in the modern sense. They were mostly just as English as the people ruled by Wessex. The rulers of the north could also use the term Dane to unite the people around. Consider the people who lived in northern part of today's Midlands of England. Wessex was, to them, the foreigners and invaders as much as anyone from Scandinavia. As one historian said, quote, It is possible to show that Danish identity was not a given, but was socially and culturally constructed in the process of settlement, deployed at certain times and places in particular contexts and expressed in different ways in a variety of media, unquote. So to the guys who lived north of Watling Street, 
maybe their ancestors were Scandinavian and between now and then they had intermarried with Scots or Northumbrians or Irish and more. But crucially, ethnicity was not a factor in the wars that were going on. Neither was religion, since we know the Danish rulers of those territories were converting to Christianity and making deals with local churchmen as much as the noblemen of Wessex were doing the same. And even the very name, the Dane Law, the title given to the region to denote Scandinavian domination, that term was invented in the 11th century. It does not apply to this era in the 10th century. It does not apply to the great game. In short, the very idea of the English versus the Danes in the 10th century is an artificially created narrative, constructed at the time to unite the local populations behind whatever side they were on. Whenever the kings of Wessex conquered some part of Britain, they would hand the residents a new shirt and say, you're now playing for Team England. Whenever the northern parts were invaded by some resident of the Irish Sea or a resident of Scandinavia, the powers that be would hand them a new shirt saying, hey, welcome, you're now playing for Team Danelaw. And some regions would see the residents swap sides half a dozen times during this game. To quote the same historian, Professor Hadley from the Department of Archaeology and Prehistory at the University of Sheffield, quote, documentary, linguistic and archaeological evidence may be interpreted to suggest that Scandinavian settlers had a major impact on the society and culture of northern and eastern England. But that impact was not uniform. Moreover, so many of the visible expressions of Danishness were determined not so much by the scale of the settlement as by the political and cultural manipulation of Danishness by the elites of the Danelaw, unquote. It's a lively and ongoing academic debate, and at no point do I suggest this issue is settled. Rather, I'm telling a story, and while I alert you to the idea that some may disagree with this interpretation, it is upon this narrative that I shall hang my account. Overall, going forward into the 10th century, we need to grab hold of one core narrative detail that helps us make sense of everything that was going on in this extraordinary era. That to the people at the time, the future was unset and mutable. The English nation could have easily, surprisingly easily, have gone the same way as the kingdoms of Kent or Mercia, reduced to being a mere footnote in history and existing only in memory and academic debate. Yes, the stakes were that high. Remember, only a few generations earlier, the grandparents of the people alive at this time lived in a world filled with nation-states with hundreds of years of history and tradition. These were all gone. Back then, in their grandparents' time, London was a small Mercian trade port, declining from its glory days, and defended by a small defensive ditch dug around it. Now it was a harsh and angry village, surrounded by massive walls, ferociously gazing out at a confusing and changing world. Who knew what the land would be like in their time of their grandchildren? Well, we know. But our hindsight blinds us to seeing the world as they saw it. We allow our foreknowledge, bias our understanding of what was to come, and inadvertently, perhaps sure, 
We invalidate their voice and remove the agency of the people at the time. No one supported Edward the Elder because they knew Aethelstan would eventually come along. No one supported Olaf Guthrison because they knew it would eventually, a century or so later, lead to Canute coming to England. And when Rollo settled in Normandy, he never knew that his many generations later descendant, William, would take the throne of England. Such developments never once entered into the minds of those people at the time. And it is the hard job of this narrator and all historians to try and remind the general audience of this simple fact. And that's what makes the great game so important. Because this is what London and its residents were dealing with. What informed their decisions and their choices. It was what was to make the city what it finally ended up becoming. And that's it for today's episode. <laughs> Next week, we begin to try and take all this knowledge and apply it to London and the growth it was undergoing, quietly sitting there on the edges of all these exciting things, you know, with his peace skills running around and killing anyone who stole from his residence. As always, if you look in the description of this episode, you'll find a link to a rough script and uh, freely shared for anybody who wants to read along as well as listen along and there's some pictures and maps and stuff and I'll include a link in that script to the paper by Professor Hadley of the University of Sheffield that I stumbled along while researching this episode because I find it interesting if this is your first time listening to the podcast I do so hope you enjoyed it and feel free to check out the previous 18 episodes if you did like it please leave a like or a 5 star review as this does impress the machine overlords who run podcast algorithms. And I must thank Greg Bazoo for a lovely review on Apple Podcasts. It means more than you can ever know. Thank you so much. Anyway, enough of my rambling. I will see you next week for another chapter in the story of London. <laughs>